Aerospace Unplugged. Welcome to Aerospace Unplugged. I'm your host, Carrie Sinclair, and today we're talking about engine performance. Be sure to fasten your seatbelts as we discuss today's topic, which includes jet engines, APUs, and tips for how you can improve your engine performance. Joining me in the studio today is Honeywell's Director of Business Development for Engine and Power Systems, Mike Bevins. Mike, I've known you for a while. Welcome to the studio. Carrie, it's great to see you again. I look forward to talking about engines. All right, great. Well, give me a little bit of your background. When did you come to Honeywell? What is your education in? I'm a bit of a dinosaur. I came 30, over 30 years ago. I started with one of the competitors, wonderful little small gas turbine engines. And uh, back in the 1980s, we had five development programs going simultaneously. So if you had an engineering degree and a pulse, they hired you. And there's a lot of talented people here that all started around that same era. Okay, great. And then so, but what led you to be the Director of Business Development for Engines and Power Systems? I know you have had some hand in sales in the past too. Well, I'm the worst person to ask about career advice here because I started out in engineering and then I was tapped on the shoulder one day when the CEO wanted to know about organic growth and a sales team. And I was one of the individuals they pulled out of engineering to put into a sales role. (laughs) And I had the I had the honor of leading the technical sales group, which is a group that just rocks. And we help our customers design their future products around Honeywell solutions. And then, uh, again, minding my own business, I got tapped to look for new opportunities for Honeywell Aerospace to grow in new markets, new customers, new business models. And that's my current role. That's really cool. Okay. Well, we're excited to have you here today, so I'm going to go ahead and get started, and I do see you as an expert when we come to engines. So what kind of engines do you work with on a daily basis, and what can you tell me about how different the the engines are that you work with? Well, in my current role, I I actually touch them all each week. Uh, To This morning, for example, I was working on one of our light civil helicopter engines, the HTS 900. We've got some interesting customer inquiries around what we might do with that in non-traditional uses. But all of the engine, we're a full service engine company. We build the turbo fan engines, which you think of as a jet engine and has a fan on the front. We build turbo prop engines, which obviously have a propeller on front. The turbo shaft engines typically go on, for example, a helicopter. They shaft goes into a gearbox and drives a rotor. Um, and then we build auxiliary power units, which also uh, function in the exact same way, except they're only providing uh, compressed air and electricity to help the airplane while it's on the ground in, in low altitude flight. I think you're underselling an APU that has to start within a few seconds in freezing conditions <laughs> at altitude, right? That is true. That is true. And we, uh, we're we unique in the industry because we build APUs, all of which are capable to be used in flight. Some of our competitors have ground-use-only APUs, but when you come to Honeywell, you get the, the best of the APU designs, and they're fully capable, including a pilot, if they need to, can push a button in flight, and that thing will start and will provide power to the airplane. I've seen the test facility. It's really cool. All right. So um, what engine has the most power that we have today and then, or that exists today? Well, we're a small engine company. That's a very good question. We are a small engine company. And by that, I mean, we build engines less than 10,000 pounds of thrust. If it's a jet engine, less than uh, 7,000 shaft horsepower, 10,000 shaft horsepower. Uh, The biggest engines out there are powering the uh, Boeing 777 and they're over 100,000 pounds of thrust. Wow. They're huge. You can stack our engines in the inlet, you know, three or four tall. But that being said, 
our little APU is in the tail of that airplane, and it puts compressed air through a valve that we make at our Tempe facility, and it starts those big engines. So they can't even run those big engines without Honeywell. Oh, that's great. So uh, let's talk about performance. Let's just talk about a typical engine. And I don't know if you want to think turbofan or you want to think turboprop, however you want to go here. But what's the typical requirements for maintenance of an engine? Well, that's changed over time. It's much more dynamic today. Uh, it used to be that all of the engines had fixed maintenance intervals, and if the engine had reached a certain number of hours or cycles, it had to come off wing, had to go to a maintenance facility, and had to be torn down and overhauled. But today, the customers don't want that. Today, the customers are focused on costs and simplicity of operation, and we've accommodated them by doing what's called unconditioned maintenance. So all of our engines, our newest engines, are such that you monitor the performance, Occasionally, you'll do a scheduled inspection of the engine, even peeking inside with a boroscope. But if everything's working well, you simply leave it on on the airplane and continue to run it indefinitely. Eventually, years later, it may have to come off wing because some of the parts will cycle out, we say. They have a limited number of cycles that they can accommodate. But until then, they can leave it on the, on wing. It's saving our customers a lot of money. It's saving them a lot of complexity in their operations because they just don't have to do these scheduled maintenance events anymore. And we've been out in the front of that, and we do it for both our military and our commercial customers as well. So it's really condition-based maintenance. It really is. And it's part of the connected strategy, actually, because we have to monitor the engine and kind of predict when it might get into trouble because you never want to surprise but but we can tell them if the engine's degrading in a certain way, whether they've got three months or another year before they're going to have to ultimately take it off wing. But either way, the maintenance events are fewer, and, and we tend to know more about them before they even take the engine off wing than we did in the past scheme. That makes sense. Okay, so we have a lot of listeners that are in different markets. So mm-hmm. can you kind of talk through the difference between what a commercial airline deals with with their engines mm-hmm. or APUs? business aviation customers, and maybe even the military, how it might differ. Oh, come on. Let's make this fun. Throw in the general aviation All right, let's do it. And the clusters. Yeah, do it. (laughs) Because it really does apply. It's completely different. If you're used to – the business aviation community is amazingly consistent. They all tend to – even though they're very diverse and they're all over the world, they tend to care about the same things. It's really important. They have one airplane typically. They really want that airplane to dispatch whenever and wherever it needs to. They don't like surprises. And they're willing to pay for like extended warranty programs and and connected strategies to ensure that that's really important to them. They don't have a spare airplane at their disposal like an airline might. Um, The airlines, again, are focused on cost of ownership. That's everything to them. So they can handle a surprise. They have backup equipment and inventory and lots of trained mechanics and tools at at the ready. But boy, they, they care about every penny in dollars per seat mile that they measure as they carry passengers around the world. The general aviation community is completely different, whether they're utility helicopters or utility turboprops, for example. They're delivering the mail. They're hauling packages for Federal Express and the like. Um, they might do different things with the airplanes at different times. And uh, a lot of them run on very low margins. And they are uh, looking for any way to save on maintenance costs or operating costs. And they'll do some very non-traditional things. And they're scattered all over the all over the world at the smaller regional airports. They're not at the major airports. So they're tricky and complicated to serve. We have a product support team that does a wonderful job of finding these people and caring for these people because their needs are totally different from one operator to the next. They're not at all uniform like business aviation and airline customers are. So you're just not going to tackle military? Well, I can tackle military. (laughs) The military is interesting because 
They, the militaries around the world tend to do a lot of their own product support, for example. They have depots, they have staff, they have their own inventory. And so they largely handle uh, all of the routine issues themselves inside their own infrastructure, if you will. Our team is brought in uh, frequently if there's a challenge that they haven't seen before. There's a surprise. We're there to train them. We're there to help them in, in un- unique, challenging situations. But for the most part, they control everything about how their their vehicles are maintained. We do have a facility here at Sky Harbor behind us, a maintenance facility. Certain military engines from the U.S. military and foreign militaries are sent here for maintenance. We're part of their, if you will, depot structure in that regard. Um, And they want to maintain integrity, which means if you take a part out of their engine, inspect it, they want that exact same part put back in their engine. So we have different part numbers on their engines, even though they're common with a commercial engine. We have to make sure they can keep track of their parts and how they're used and how they're tracked and so forth. It's sort of the blockchain philosophy where you have to make sure you have the same part and where it's been in its whole entire life cycle, right? Exactly right. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about APUs a little bit. How do they differ from engines? If If you open up an APU and look inside and next to it, you open up a propulsion engine, they look very similar. They have the same parts and they operate on the same physics. The difference is that the APU has a, it has to be able to be, um, operable without anybody in the cockpit monitoring it. Um, so it's unattended, we say. So there's certain design things you have to do. So this thing's running on the ramp at full power, powering the airplane, cooling the cabin, turning on the lights and so forth. And there's nobody in the cockpit monitoring it. It has to be safe. It has to be quiet. It has to be, uh, no, no worries around it. Um, the propulsion engines, on the other hand, are only operated with a pilot at command, and they are um, have to be, provide prime propulsion. If an if a APU fails, it oftentimes is an inconvenience more so than it is any, a, a safety concern. If a propulsion engine fails, obviously there's much higher levels of concern, and the engines typically have to operate at higher altitudes, higher Mach numbers, and so forth, because they're operating anywhere the airplane can fly, and so their design is inherently more complicated. When we take a tour of our production facility, we often talk about this topic and we point out that in the cockpit, there's a button for the APU. You push the button, the APU automatically starts if it's a Honeywell APU and it <laughs> automatically reaches its speed and runs at constant speed and it does everything it's supposed to do quietly and unattended, as I mentioned. You can't pump it up or pump it down. There it just is goes. no throttle. Right. But okay. if you get into the, if you start the main engines, it's a more complicated process and yes, there are throttles. So, so they're similar in architecture but more complicated from the engine's perspective because the engine has to do more and in more varied environments. Got it. Okay. All right. Well, uh, so now let's talk about why would an aircraft need more than one engine? Oh, well, ironically, uh, the running joke in the industry has always been when they asked uh, people, why did they fly on a Boeing 747 across the pond to Europe? They said, because there's no other aircraft that has five engines. So we have to settle for the one that has four. And, and, and now fast forward to today where a little company in Duluth, Minnesota, Cirrus is building a single engine jet and won an industry award for the design of that. Um, engine reliability has gotten to the level where the buying public trusts engines to actually have a single, single engine jet, not a turboprop at low altitude, but a jet at higher altitudes, higher speeds. Um, people, People get on a Boeing 777, for example, at the airport and think nothing of the fact of what a groundbreaking decision that was. And Honeywell was part of this with Boeing. We were brought in very early on this. Um, 
that they were going to change the paradigm in the industry and make a twin-engine intercontinental jet that was going to fly across the Atlantic and the Pacific, across the pole and so forth. That was unimaginable. But again, it changed the paradigm of cost for operating the the aircraft for the airlines. It was what the airlines needed and wanted. And Boeing figured that out. And they brought us into that early. If you want to talk about the APU, we have the exclusive APU on that installation. And it was ETOPS rated at entry into service, which is not something that had never been done before. And Roger DeRutter and his team. Can you define ETOPS for me? I can. Um, extended twin operations. So when you fly a uh, jet across uh, a, a large expanse, like the like the like an ocean, like the Arctic caps, for example, okay. or the ocean, you have a certain range that you know. If an engine fails, you have to be able to get to a safe landing space. So that can, that says you may not be able to fly straight across the ocean. You kind of have to fly along Greenland and Iceland and Ireland and so forth to get to Europe. And if you have four engines and you fail one, not so bad. You've got you know, 75% Three power. more to go. But if you have two engines, yeah. <laughs> it's a whole different game. So um, airlines can get this extended operations certificate when they can demonstrate that their maintenance practices and their operation practices are such that the airline, the airline, uh, the airplanes the airlines operate are inherently reliable. And as they get more experience, they get to have a longer session away from land. They can fly a more direct route. To make the twin engine 777 viable, all of us key suppliers, and our AP was part of this, had to demonstrate that we could do that. And the airlines weren't going to buy that airplane if they were going to have to fly the old-fashioned route along the country coasts. They wanted to fly more directly across right from the first day they bought the airplane and put it in service. So we had to accommodate that to the best of our abilities. And the APU on that airplane was testing away at Fairbanks, Alaska for years. And they ran lots and lots of tests to gain that confidence and that certification ability for the airlines. So a lot of reliability tests, those kinds of things. Exactly right. Um, so it would it would start when it needed to. You mentioned cold soap before. It would start cold soaked. It would get up power in a certain amount of time. So even if they lost not an engine, but just the generators on an engine failed, they could start the APU and, and have the generators on the APU supplement and keep the airplane safe and flying. And that's a scenario you have to consider as well, not just losing the engine. So I have a crazy question. Sure. Is So two engines are more efficient than one, let's say, with the same thrust. So the two maybe have 20,000 thrust and, you know, yeah. versus one engine that has 40,000. What What is your payoff there? Well, it, it, there's lots of design considerations, and it's different for a military fighter jet, for example, than necessarily for an, air, for an airliner. There is a lot of confidence that comes with having redundancy, obviously, in two engines or there's a certain level more, of redundancy. Right? Yeah, and you can put four generators, two generators per engine, and even make redundancy there applicable. Um, but the the cost of operating the airplane, a lot of it goes into engine maintenance, whether it's a military engine or a commercial engine. It's not a trivial expense to the airlines. And so if you have four engines, that is an, a much larger ticket to pay when those engines all need to be overhauled. And so going to three engines or two engines is a better solution. Um Going to a single engine at the Cirrus jet level, that's a general aviation aircraft, is all about the fact that uh, keeping those costs manageable. They want the speed that a jet implies. They want to be able to fly high, climb quickly, and fly above the traffic and go point to point. But boy, God, having two engines is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, a single engine jet's not for everybody. Uh, keep in mind, the engine does a lot of other things. It pressurizes the cabin. 
Now you're in a round airplane. You know, you're, you have a 6,000 or 8,000 foot altitude, even though you're flying at 35 or 45,000 feet. And it pressurizes the altitude, it keeps the air warm and appropriate temperature and so forth. If you only have a single engine, it's very intolerant. If that engine fails, you've got to make sure that you can get down to a safe altitude that's breathable and survivable very, very quickly. And because, because the options are not good at 45,000 feet. Um, so a single engine jet is desirable from speed and, and climbing and, and abilities and so forth, but it's not for everybody. Okay. Let's talk about the different places that the engines are mounted. Sometimes they're kind of below the wing, uh, with Cirrus, I think it's in the back, right? Right. How does that impact performance? Well, um, if you go back to look at early jets, the idea was you'd put the engines so they're right along the center line of the aircraft, kind of where the windows are, so that there's no need for the engines to fight and try and push the airplane up or down. They're just lined up with the center line of the aircraft. And um, that has certain advantages, but it also has significant disadvantages as well. So the airlines began to put the engines under the wings and forward of the wings. If you look, they're actually cantilevered out in front of them. And the wings are full of fuel. That's a good place to put them. Um, but when you build a smaller jet, like a business jet, the wings are so close to the ground, you can't really put the engines there. So by default, you have to put the engine toward the back of the airplane. And even then it matters. And if you look at airplanes that are built by Dassault, for example, the Falcon 2000 or the Falcon 900 or 7X, it's dramatic how they curve in the back of the, of the fuselage where the engines are to tuck the engines in snug and tight. Makes the, if you lose an engine in, and takeoff roll, for example, not that that happens very often, but it could, you would not have the, the engines sitting way out on the side where they would swerve the airplane off the runway before the pilot could respond safely. Um, so engine placement is very key to everything that we, we do. Um, you don't want to have the engines anywhere where they can pick up debris from the runway. And we talk about the general aviation community. We actually have a turboprop engine that's unique. It has the engine inlet up or inlet down, depending on whether it's a high wing airplane or they're going to put it on the nose of the airplane because you want to have clean air going in the inlet without uh, any debris. And some of those airplanes land on grass runway or gravel runways, depending where in the world they're operated. So we actually accommodate them. We make it easier for them by offering them an inlet up if they want to put the engine low and inlet down if they want to put the engine high. I was going to ask about bird strikes, but now seems like a good time to ask. Still a problem? Absolutely. Unfortunately, that's one of the challenges in the industry that will never go away. Um, most traveling public have no idea what goes on behind the scenes at every airport to keep the people safe. The birds are a real threat. Um, I, I worked at uh, British Aerospace facility. I was based over there for a year and they had their own airfield. That's where they build the wings now for Airbus in Chester. And they actually would mow the grass all the time. And I couldn't figure out why. Were they just trying to keep people busy or what was the deal? No, they discovered in that part of the, the northeastern part of Wales, they had certain bird threats and there was a certain height of grass that discouraged those particular birds. <laughs> shorter they got these birds, if it was longer they got these other birds, but if it was this, they got fewer birds. And, and, and others use falconers. I mean, seriously, you can go to like Newark and there's falconers who go out there and, and they, 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 they're paid by the airport to show up and they alert, turn their falcons loose and chase all the pigeons and all the other birds away. 
Um, this stuff goes on constantly. It's a real threat. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. So do we still do bird testing? Oh, absolutely. It's mandated. Um, and, uh, it, it is, we, we have to do a medium bird test and a large bird test. And there's different cri- pass fail criteria for those two tests. And the FAA witnesses those tests and they must be done with freshly euthanized bird carcasses. They can't be done. We can do the practice runs with a gel bird or a, uh, some other Something substitute. Fake. You can right. buy these on the open market. There's companies, engineering companies that have developed these, but the FAA and EASA still mandate that the engines, the airframe, like the winds and wings, leading edges and the windshields all have to have bird testing. So we have a bird cannon where we do the testing at Santan. Yes. Well, I think we're all familiar with a recent, well, not too recent, but bird strike <laughs> with uh, U.S. Airways not too long ago. Miracle on the Hudson. Yep. Uh, yeah. When we talk to the in-house, we have a, a ground school for pilot pilots candidates, and I'm often asked to speak there. And I look at them, and they say, "Well, here's the engine guy. What does he know about this?" And I say, "So, so, um, what are the two most important things for a pilot? Right? Tell me. Airspeed and altitude. Airspeed and altitude. You can do a lot of things if you're flying high and you're going fast, but every pilot worries about." low altitude, low speed uh, issues, which is why there's a quiet cockpit. If you ever sit in a jump seat, they'll tell you there's no conversation with the pilots, no questions, no discussion below 10,000 feet. That's always true. It's quiet cockpit. And uh, because below 10,000 feet, you have essentially no altitude. And in the case of Sully, he was taking off. They were climbing. So they were taking all the energy toward getting altitude, but they didn't have a lot of airspeed. And, uh, so he had the worst of the worst. He had lost both engines when he had no altitude and no airspeed. He had exactly one opportunity to make a decision. There was no going back. There was no mulligans. He had to decide, do I try to reach an airport? Do I try to land somewhere else? Do I ditch in a river? What do I do? Because he had no time and there was no opportunity to make a correction if he, dis- if he discovered that was not the right thing to do. It, that's what makes it a miracle. He made the right decision that fast. Yep. It's pretty impressive. Okay. Well, moving on. Let's talk about temperature. That's another thing that can impact an engine. Uh, the difference between, say, zero sea level and 35,000 feet. Well, you talk about engine performance. That's what this is about. And temperature is the single most important thing. The really cool thing in this product line, if you look across Honeywell, if you look across industry in general, we work on a unique product. These engines and APUs operate on a thermodynamic cycle where temperature and pressure make all the difference in the world. It's amazing, but it's one of the few things in the physical world where if we can increase the pressure and the temperature, we can increase the efficiency, which is why we use these exotic materials you can't even pronounce. We have these <laughs> crazy machining and manufacturing operations which which can actually manipulate these materials and bring them to a high tolerance that we need to operate in the engines. It's all because we want to turn up the wick, as we say, run the engines hotter because they become more efficient. So that's really cool. But wait a minute. Take our HTF 7000 engine. It's a business jet engine. It makes 7,000 pounds of thrust roughly on takeoff at, at a runway. But as you climb, the air temperature, as you know, it gets colder and the air gets less dense. So We can't make as much thrust. There's not as much air to pump through the engine. By the time they get to cruise altitude, that 7,000-pound thrust engine is only making 1,400 pounds of thrust. How can the airplane fly? It's a stainless physical airplane. (laughs) It's impossible. Well, actually, no, it's not. It turns out that because the air is so much less dense up there, 
the drag is less. So even though we're making much, much less thrust, we're making a quarter as much thrust, the airplane actually flies faster and further up there. Um, but it's true. And cheaper. And cheaper. That's right. The, less fuel. That's exactly right. The, what you try to do is climb quickly to, to cruise altitude, pull the throttle back in that thin air, and then you can go for a very, very long ways. Um, so that temperatures everything in, in, in these, in the performance of these engines and in the performance of the airplanes as well. How does that apply to helicopters? They are much lower to the ground, but they still have the same altitude issues, right? Well, they absolutely do. And, and we sell retrofits of some of our, we put a more powerful engine on some of our customers' helicopters and kick the competitors off actually, because our engines provide better what's called hot and high performance. You'll hear that term used frequently. And these are operators who are operating in, 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 in Mexico, in Latin America, in the Rocky Mountains of the U.S. and Canada. And they're operating routinely in conditions which are, you know, 6,000, 7,000 feet in elevation on, on a hot summer day. And the stock helicopter wouldn't have the performance to do the job. Think about firefighting, for example. This is a really big deal. Fires run up mountains. You've got to be able to get the water up the mountain quickly to fight fire. And it's we, a lot of cargo. It is a lot of heavy, water's heavy. <laughs> and, um, so, so we're doing a nice business retrofitting our engines on customers because of the altitude effects you were just talking about. So when you reach a certain altitude, how do you prevent the engine from freezing? Well, we make a lot of heat. I mean, again, these engines run at really, really high temperatures. So there's not that much of a problem. We actually help keep, we have a, we have a device on our engines, um, a fuel heater, oil cooler. We make a lot of heat. Our oil, engine oil gets hot and, but the wings are full of fuel and they're freezing out there because it's minus 60 degrees at cruising <laughs> altitude. Yeah. So it'll turn to gel if you're not careful. So we actually, it, as part of our engine function, we pump that oil, that fuel out of the wings, run it by the engine. We cool our engine oil at the same time as we heat their, their, uh, wing, their fuel in the wings. So, um, we also have to heat the cabin, right? People don't do well at minus 60 degrees. So we use hot air from the engine and we pump it into an environmental control system, which is typically made by Honeywell out in Torrance. And we keep you warm and comfortable on board your, your airplane at altitude. So the engine's freezing is not the issue. It's the airframe freezing up or the fuel freezing up or the passengers freezing up. And we have you covered there. We got you covered completely. You do a lot more than my car's engine does. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, so if you if you look at a Gulfstream business jet, every one of them has our environmental control system on it. Every one of them has our cabin pressurization system on it. Um, every one of them has our, you know, they have our avionics on it and our APU on it. And all of those systems are provided by Honeywell. And it's pretty cool that we can go look you in the eye as a customer and say, we got you covered on this. Mm-hmm. You're not going to have any problems on your new aircraft because all of these systems are made by us. And we'll have it all figured out. And you have one person accountable. You just call us because we own all of that. If your customers aren't comfortable on board, if you're, uh, your your ice your fuel's icing up or anything like that. That's all us. We'll fix all of that. And so your engine does it. a lot more than power the aircraft. It's really cooling the fuel. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. It's we, doing a whole lot more. We even make the airplane fly backwards. If you land on the ground, where's thrust reversers, right? <laughs> right. We can, ba- you know, we, I don't know if that's flying backwards necessarily. Fair but, enough. Okay. <laughs> but we can actually, we can actually make reverse thrust in addition to, to forward thrust. And on a turboprop, you know, we ret- ret- retrofit our engines onto Sesta caravans. And if you're on floats, it's a beautiful thing because we can back up your airplane with our engine. We have, we have all kinds of capabilities people don't think about. They only think about what makes the airplane go fast and forward. 
So Mike, we've talked a lot about what makes an engine efficient or makes it perform better, the altitude, the temperature, etc. And I know in my car, I know that if I take it on the highway, I'm going to get better miles per gallon than maybe taking the back roads. What can pilots do to improve the performance of their engines? It's very similar, actually, to that. We were sensitive to how they operate the engines. If they're constantly pushing the throttle to the limit, they can do that. It's allowed, but it's going to show up probably at the overhaul event being a more expensive overhaul. The engines are absolutely safe to the rated power. And now we have computers on the engines so they can push the throttle to what's called a detent. They can't push it any further, and it's going to give them the maximum amount of thrust. But they don't have to fly there. Um, and, and there's, there, there's things like that that they can, they can do. If they have a vibration that's showing up, even though it's not outside of limits, let's get it looked at. Let's go understand where it's coming from because vibration is a very damaging thing. Keep in mind that a little APU, um, that the, the, the parts inside that engine are spinning 600 revolutions per second, per second. So a little bit of vibration is a big deal, much more so than your car. And uh, so pilots that are sensitive to how an engine works and and um, what's not quite right, even though it's not out of limits, can save themselves a lot of money. I just have to comment that you keep calling it a little APU, and I've seen our APUs, and they don't seem little to me. You're absolutely right. These <laughs> APUs that are on the big the big Boeing and Airbus aircraft are are very large and very powerful. Um, just but, little compared to your engine. <laughs> well, they are. I mean, if you compare it to like the engine in your car. And you put them side by side, you're going, how is it possible that this gas turbine engine produces four times or five times more power? And it's the same size as the engine of my car. I mean, again, you've got a, you've got a GE 90 engine that makes 110,000 pounds of thrust on a Boeing 777X. And our engine, which is a fraction of the size, is starts it. Right. Right. We've got enough power. It's mighty might. These it's APUs just are... bigger than me, Mike, is all I have to say. <laughs> I, I point to people and say, it'll fit under your desk, right? It's literally that small, but it'll start an engine the size of a GE90, which is just massive. Back to the origin of these engines. How do you get them certified? We talked a little bit about that ETOPS thing for APU, but tell me how an engine really gets certified. How long does that the, process take? This is a really important question because if you look at an airplane, any airplane, you say, well, it's all certified and it all has to be certified together. Well, not really. On that airplane, there's one part that is certified separately and that's the engine. Because many, many years ago, the certification authorities, not just in the United States, but all around the world agreed the technology that goes into an engine, whether it's a turboshaft, a turboprop or a turbofan, is so different from anything else on the airplane that we'll have a separate set of rules and regulations and the engine can certify against. And indeed, even today, you can go on the websites for EASA, Transport Canada, ANAC in Brazil, the Russian authorities, or the U.S., and you can look up the type certificate for an engine, and there it is. And it makes no reference to an airplane. The engines are certified individually, independently of that. And in the military, it's the same thing. The military engines are qualified, not certified, but it's functionally the same and they are certified and they're qualified separate from the airframe and then they're integrated on the airframe by the airframer and yes then the whole system does go through cert tests for the airframe but meanwhile the engine is already certified by itself but what goes into that how many years of experience goes into that you think? oh yeah um 
let me try to answer that this way. It's really hard to stand up an engine company if you're not already an engine company and certified because there are so many diverse regulations. If you don't have a track record um, of how you've done it in the past and how it's worked successfully, like Bird Strike, for example, you talked about, uh, how do you set up your test? How do you administer that test? How do you measure pass-fail on that test? That's all stuff that we can do because we've done it successfully so many times before. And it's taken for granted. If you were going to start a new company up, you'd have to start from scratch about everything about the test setup, not just whether or not the engine failed or didn't fail. And that ripples through hundreds and hundreds of pages of regulations that have to be done. It's a massive task. So, for example, people don't think about it, but we have to look at a at a part internal to the engine that you'll never see unless you go to an overhaul shop. And if there's a flaw in that part, we have to assume that there is, even though there's not. What happens to that flaw as the engine operates? Even if you think about it, that's really critical. And imagine one of those parts that's spinning 600 times a second, and it's got a little flaw in it. Um, there's nothing in the cockpit that tells the pilot that there's a flaw in that part or that that flaw may be getting into a crack, and that crack may be growing, and ultimately that could be very bad. So we have to make these manufacturing processes, the materials processes, so precise and so consistent and so repeatable that that is never an issue. But even then, in, in the aerospace industry, unlike other industries, we have to assume failure, right? So, right. for example, we buy raw material for one of these parts. We have records that go back that stipulate that we know who melted the raw ingredients to become that alloy. We know that person by name and badge number. We know which furnace it was done and where that furnace was is located and when that furnace was certified. And if they unplug the furnace and move it six feet to the right, they have to redo the whole certification process. So we know where all that metal went, into which disks, into which engines, and to which customers. And if there's an incident in the industry, which is admittedly very, very rare, we can go get those records and find out who else has a part from that master melt of material. Seriously, we have those records forever. <laughs> and I love showing that to the vice president of procurement from one of our airframers who comes in and says, why are these engines so expensive? And I said, walk this way. Let me show you <laughs> the air-conditioned facility where we keep these records. The documentation that goes back. Yes. <laughs> Since 1968 or whatever, right? What do you so, think the oldest engine flying is from Honeywell? Uh, well, our... our uh, TP331 just had its about 50, 45 or 50th anniversary. Um, some of, there, there, there are some of those very old TP331s out there. A lot of the old, old APUs I can't speak to. I don't think T55, many of them. T55, how old is that one? Boy, it's, it, that's right. It came from Lycoming, and it's quite old as well. Yeah. And it's, what a workhorse. I mean, we have just taken that engine and put infused new technology over and over again so that um, if you're high in the mountains and you have an earthquake, uh, and you need to get doctors and water and medicine and blankets up there. That's it. The T-55 engine on a Chinook helicopter is the only thing that's going to get reasonable quantities of that stuff to those high elevations, 16,000 feet up or 14,000 feet up. Right. It's the only one in the world because we've injected more technology in that engine over the time and kept the engine basically the same. So it flies on the same airframe, which is really important to Boeing, who makes the Chinook helicopter for the Army. That's a happy story. It's really been well done by the team. All right. So we've talked quite a bit about performance. We've talked a lot about our history and the way that we certify our engines. But what do you, what do you think is coming down the pipe in the future? What's next? Well, obviously, everybody's concerned about cost. Um, we have gotten to a, a, a level of maturity in air transport, whether it's passengers or cargo, whether it's military or commercial, 
where everybody sort of takes a lot of what used to be um, important for granted now. They, the, the, they want to see low emissions. They want to have very quiet acoustics around airports. New things have been rising to the fore that are most important in our customer eyes because they assume we're going to have power to weight and fuel efficiency that's very competitive. Um, so cost of operation is big. That's where our connected strategy comes in. We try to get out ahead of it. We try to make sure they're doing kind things to their engine and minimizing their costs and extending their maintenance intervals and so forth. Um, and, but also there's emerging threats. You've seen in the auto industry, there are credible players now who are building electric and hybrid cars and have been for years. And yet that is, that's coming to aviation as well. Uh, it's less certain when and how it will get there, but people are largely unaware. I, Part 23 is the federal regulation for general aviation aircraft. And the FAA, in trying to get out ahead of this, they're scrambling to keep up with these startup companies and all that. They had to rewrite Part 23, which is everything about certifying a general aviation aircraft. Um, because the, it, it stipulated how the aircraft had to be designed. Well, they never anticipated a hybrid electric propulsion system, for example, or a fully electric system, for example. So we just finished a little over a year and a half ago, a rewrite of the fundamental regulation. It was done by the industry, all players, including the regulators from Europe and so forth. And rather than saying, this is how the airplane has to be designed. This is the architecture that must be adopted. It talks about performance and safety. How you get the performance and safety is up to you. If you want to make it hybrid electric or fully electric with batteries, or you want to make it a turbine engine or a piston engine, you can. No more is it written that way. This is groundbreaking, and it's and it's uh, it's very disruptive in the industry. It's amazing how many companies are out there playing in this game right now, and every one of them are calling us. They're calling us at Honeywell Aerospace because we're the one-stop shop. Whether it's radar, or ground proximity warning systems, or propulsion engines, or APUs, we got it all. And uh, so... Guys like Brian Wood are fielding phone calls every week. It's kind of, it's, it's fascinating to watch. Well, Mike, it's been great having you on the show here. And I would like to wrap up with a question we ask each of our guests. How do you unplug at the end of the day? I'm trying to picture you unplugging, which I cannot do. But uh, how do you relax and unwind? Well, it starts with, I, I play tennis twice a week with a group of individuals, none of whom are in the aerospace industry. And that just helps a ton. <laughs> Um, I don't laugh, but, uh, my dogs play a role in this. They insist on a walk in the preserve behind the house every day, uh, no matter what day, what hour I get home. And then my mountain bike and my wife, Deanna, if, if I come to work refreshed and recharged, you can credit Deanna for that. She gets a lot of credit for that. All right. Well, thanks, Deanna. <laughs> and thanks, Mike. Thanks for being here. All right, everyone. Once again, my name is Carrie Sinclair, and thank you for listening to Aerospace Unplugged, a podcast dedicated to providing our listeners with a behind-the-scenes look into all things aerospace. To find out more about how you can improve your aircraft performance, visit our website at aerospace.honeywell.com. Safe travels, and we'll see you next time. Today's episode was produced by Katie Carney and edited by Bogdan Koroshev.